Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It is my great pleasure to have my co-interviewer, Patrice de Thiel, and his co-author, David McKenzie, right here in the studio with me today. Patrice is the president of the Champlain Society, as well as a professor of politics and public administration, and David McKenzie is a professor of history. Both are right here at Ryerson University. Patrice and David, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Nice to be here. Yes, thank you. Now, this is a book that I very much enjoyed, um, and I should tell everybody and all of our listeners that it's Embattled Nation, Canada's wartime election of 1917, just published by Dundurn Press. It's 360 pages. It's a wonderfully entertaining and interesting narrative about one of the most difficult periods of Canadian history. Now, both of you state at the beginning and end of your book that the election in 1917 divided Canadians as never before or since. We have had plenty of divisive elections in Canada in the last 150 years. So what do you mean by this, Patrice? Well, um, I don't think the stakes were ever as high as in 1917. This is an election that takes place in a context that is spectacularly bloody. There had been, the election took place on the 17th of December. There had been at least 10,000 deaths, deaths in, on the battlefront in 1917, at least 10,000. Uh, you have to compare that to today, that would be, be 40,000 deaths. So, I mean, I think that puts you in the context. You've got unbelievable number of Canadians dying on the front after three years of war. You have the Bolshevik Revolution in uh, November 1917. You have Halifax blown up uh, a week or two before the election. There is tremendous stress, division between English and French, between the rural areas and the urban areas, and between those who want to serve, who want Canada to serve more intensely the war effort and those Canadians who think that Canada has done enough already. The tensions boil up to the top. There is a tremendous dislocation of our politics in 1917, and the end result is expressed in that, that election of, uh, of December 1917. So, David, what allowed Canada to survive uh, this election as a country? Well, uh, I think that the glue that held the country together uh, was still fairly strong at the end of the day. I think that's probably the main reason. I mean, it came very close, came to the brink, but it didn't uh, cross over. So if it had come apart at the time, what would this have looked like? Well, it'd be hard to say for sure, but it'd be an absolute mess uh, if it had come apart. I mean, the war was still going on. They believed the war was going to go on well into 1919, maybe into 1920. Uh, It would have been a real catastrophe had that been the case. So I think we were lucky in some ways that it didn't go even farther than it did at the time. Can you describe the main contours of the conscription debate in the First World War? Well, it was a major debate between English and French Canada. You know, when you look at the first question about why the election was so divisive, it's it, all Canadian elections are divisive when you look at the numbers. But when you, when you dig down into the numbers in 1917, the country was split on linguistic lines. 
So you have English Canada on one side and French Canada on the other side. And the division over conscription was really a, based on linguistic lines all the way through. You have uh, English Canadians and their view of the war, which is fundamentally different than French Canadians. You have an enormous number of British-born English Canadians. You have no French-speaking British-born Canadians. Uh, it, is, it tilts the numbers extraordinarily on the side of English Canada. Uh, and uh, for English-speaking Canadians, so many of them British-born or the children of British-born people, they had a fundamental attachment to the British Empire. Uh, and they believed that the empires was at risk during the course of the war. French Canadians did not have that same connection to France. Uh, their connections to France were uh, broken centuries earlier. Uh, and so you just have a very fundamental difference about the way they perceived the war. And from a Canadian, English-Canadian standpoint, it was their war. Uh, in the book, we detail a lot of conversations and, and uh, uh, letters between English and French Canadians where this fundamental divide is clearly set out. You have Newton Rowell in Ontario talking to Sir Wilfrid Laurier about how important it is to fight our war. And Laurier writes back about being a Democrat and being a liberal. And Rowell says, well, being a Democrat is like Lincoln, who introduced conscription. Uh, and so you see this fundamental when Laurier writes about, we are in this war to assist Great Britain. You can almost feel the hair on the back of Rowell's neck standing on end. We're not there to assist. We're there as a partner. This is Canada's war. And so you see this fundamental division all the way down the line, all the time. And, of course, it's exacerbated. I'm sure Pat would want to talk about Regulation 17 in Ontario, which rises up right in the middle of this, which just inflames the whole situation. In fact, it's really remarkable how Regulation 17, the controversy over Regulation 17, seems to track the key events of the First World War. Um, Regulation 17 was actually created in 1912 by the Ontario government and essentially outlawed French language schools in the province. When the war begins in 1914, in the fall of 1914, the government of Ontario essentially fires the board of, the board of control, the board of directors of the uh, Catholic school board in Ottawa over uh, the issue of implementing Regulation 17. The reality is that the uh, school board in Ottawa was very divided and the French-speaking school board members did not at all agree with the government of Ontario that French schools should end. So the, the community in Ottawa is up in arms, literally. The, um, there's a strike. Um, it seems as though all through the war, there, uh, there's a parallel. There's a parallel between the rising demands in English Canada for greater participation in the war, and at the same time, uh, demanding that French education in Ontario be eliminated. So you can imagine the impact this has in Quebec, where English Canada is demanding participation and at the same time demanding that the French fact be extinguished outside of the province of Quebec. And that really raises the ire of Henri Bourassa, the editor of Le Devoir, who really becomes uh, a champion of the Franco-Ontarian cause and who will use it, who will, who will brandish that cause uh, to club um, the, those people who want English, who want Canada to participate even more intensely in, in the war. So this is where the real conflict emerges. It emerges over participation, as David says, and over the issue of conscription as 1917 rolls around. But at the same time, you have a real division over the very nature 
of Canada, over the legitimacy of Canada. How can you impose conscription on a people while at the same time denying them the opportunity to express themselves and to educate their kids in French? There's, a, there's an irony there that um, really dissolved a lot of the glue that David's talking about. You know, the, the, there was enough glue at the end, but my goodness, 1917 really dissolved an awful lot of, an awful lot of it. David, uh, do you think conscription was necessary for the war effort or simply a domestic ploy to get Borden and his government out of political trouble? Well, I don't want to sit on the fence too much, but it, you could argue both ways. I mean, people have, arguing, have argued about conscription for 100 years now. Uh, and if you look at it from a military point of view, the numbers didn't add up. And so conscription was necessary if your goal was to maintain the Canadian Expeditionary Force at its optimum level in a war that people thought would be going on into 1919, 1920. So clearly you can make a military case for conscription. I think it was also a political element to it. If you decide that you're going to have a very large army and you're going to make a, a large contribution, then you are essentially moving into a territory where you will have to introduce conscription to maintain it. There's also a case to be made that English Canada was demanding conscription and that there was really no choice for the government other than to introduce conscription. But if you're on the other side of someone who believes in national unity and the idea of uh, a connection between French and English Canada, it's harder to make that case. Okay, well, in the book you say that in general... Uh, voters choose a government, but in the case of 1917, a good argument could be made that the government chose the vote voters. So, Patrice, tell us, what exactly did Borden do? Well, it's what we call the great gerrymander. The, and I'll I'll, I'll talk about one of them, uh, and that was giving taking. I'll talk about taking away the vote. The government of Robert Borden took away the vote from anybody who came from a belligerent country or who had come from Germany or Austria or any belligerent country since 1902. Literally disenfranchising people who had voted in 1904, 1908, 1911 and said to them, you no longer are Canadians, you no longer have the right to vote. That is really um, making the assumption that a German, a recent German immigrant, a recent Austrian, uh, would have voted against the government. And so the Borden government said, we're just simply going to deny him their vote. It was all based on a very disingenuous premise. The idea was that, as argued by the conservatives, that this was a wartime election, and therefore only those people who had an investment in the war would have the right to vote. I mean, could you imagine applying that to any other Canadian election? that only people who had invested in free trade would be able to vote on the free trade election. I mean, it's, it's crazy. But that was, the, that was the logic. And therefore, they gave the vote to people like the, the uh, uh, wives and uh, daughters of servicemen because they had someone invested in the war. They took the, the vote away from those who came from enemy countries because they argued you may have to vote against your own kinsmen who are still living in the country that you came from. So it was very disingenuous from, from the very start. You can imagine taking, giving the vote to women. Now, that, that's, a, that's a nice progressive thing to do. Uh, and women had voted in Manitoba and Alberta, I think, the summer yes, of 1917. 1917 yeah. They had voted. But, but here's the thing. The Borden government says, uh, as, David, as David says, the, we will give the vote to women who have a relation 
uh, in the war effort. But at the same time, they're not giving it the vote. They're not giving the vote to women who don't, which meant that women in French Canada who did not have a relation involved in the war effort were disenfranchised. So again, you see a government that is literally handpicking its electors. Hardly surprising that the end result would be so much more in favor of the government. David, would you describe this as electoral fraud? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, if you talk about it in a political sense, you can't see it any other way. Uh, we would not tolerate any kind of gerrymandering of the vote today the way that Borden did in 1917. Taking the vote away from people who would not vote for him and giving it to people who would vote for him, uh, I think you only can consider that a fraud. Certainly a fraud of democracy. Patrice, uh, can you tell us uh, how soldiers at the front saw the election? Well, the calculation of the Borden government was that the soldiers would vote in favor of, um, of, of, of conscription. And it turns out, of course, that they did. Uh, one of the things that our book contributes is a, is a new look at the soldier voting. And what we've uncovered is the fact that um, union, the votes in favor of union, uh, went from 100% in Saskatchewan to 95.5% uh, in neighboring Manitoba, um, uh, Alberta 94.9%. In other words, the soldiers who voted voted massively in favor of the union government. Only in, uh, in Quebec is the result remarkably lower um, in that uh, in Quebec 83% of the union vote will go uh, for union. It's, um, there was a real controversy about the soldier vote in the First World War and that big election of 1917. Uh, the government originally said that um, you, any voter, any uh, soldier would, uh, could write the name of their riding on an envelope on the ballot. And if uh, the soldier did not know, if the soldier did not know his riding, well, then a riding would be assigned. And of course, that that uh, became uh, known in the uh, late after the election was held in December of 1917. So that in January, the government had to weed out those votes that had not been assigned to a riding by the soldier. In the end, we have 243,000 votes uh, from the soldiers, a participation rate of about 70 percent, and as I said earlier, overwhelmingly, that vote was uh, in favor of union government. Did it make a difference? We actually don't think so. Uh, a lot of people argued over the last hundred years that the soldiers' vote had actually swayed ridings in favor of the union government. We have not found that. We, that, that wouldn't assume that the soldiers' vote would have voted uh, entirely liberal. And that's not the way it would have actually worked. I mean, if, if, uh, take a regular soldier, put him back in, in, in Canada under regular circumstances, you'd have had a natural division between conservative and liberal. You can't simply make the assumption that a soldier would have voted liberal had he been back in Canada. So uh, making that, parsing out those results, we basically come to the conclusion that the soldiers' vote at the end did not sway any results. Where the civil vote um, did uh, carry the day uh, for the whatever party, it typically won also. Now, you say that uh, Borden as prime minister and Laurier as opposition leader actually drove Canada, your words, drove Canada to the edge of disaster, and that Borden should shoulder much of the responsibility for what happened, but that Laurier also uh, was very much culpable. Uh, 
David, can you explain why you make that charge? Uh, well, I can speak a little bit about Borden, uh, and he was uh, very much a man of his times, very much an English-Canadian. He had his very strong views. Uh, he believed in the empire. He believed in uh, Canada's role in the war. As the war goes on, he increasingly believes that Canada should get something out of the war. He has to bear the responsibility because it was his decision to uh, increase the size of the Canadian Expeditionary Force to 500,000 men. Uh, and once you do that, you essentially preordain or, or lead inevitably to conscription to maintain a force of that size. But he was very much a, a person who reflected English-Canadian views. We document a, a, an interesting story in the book uh, in which the king invites uh, a whole bunch of Canadian soldiers uh, to Buckingham Palace. And they sit around there reddening the, the king's face because they're talking about going back and killing Bourassa, killing Laurier, having a, having a civil war to weed out the French Canadians. And the king's response isn't to say, maybe you shouldn't be so intolerant to French Canadians or maybe you should try and understand their ways, their views. He dashes out. He says, we got to get the pope to send over a cardinal to get those French Canadians to start thinking straight. He just, <laughs> he just couldn't imagine that their thinking was wrong. And Borden was like that. He just... Over and over again, he says, French Canadians just don't understand it. Sometimes people blame too many priests and that kind of thing. There's an, an, a strain of anti-Catholicism going through this. But there is this, they just don't understand the war the way we do. And so when you're thinking like that, and Borden felt like that, uh, conscription is something that you must do. It, it, you have to do it. You can't let the war effort down. Right. And, and can, you, can you describe Laurier, Patrice? Well, I want to add... One thing, too, I thought that was very interesting in the sense of explaining Borden. He comes back from London in May 1917, and he's, he's at the docks in Quebec City. And at the same time, at the very same time, René Viviani, the French premier, and General Joffre, the head of the French army, are in Montreal. They're in Montreal. They're having a banquet. They're giving speeches to encourage the Montrealers, to encourage the Quebecois, well, we didn't call them Quebecois in those days, the French Canadians, to enlist and support the war effort to defend France. This is telling of Borden's mentality. He could have arranged to appear with the French premier to appear with General Joffre in Montreal, to attend one of the great rallies, and demonstrate to French Canada that he, his cause, that the French cause, his cause, the British cause, were all one and the same. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. it and he never even wondered about that. I mean, that's one of the things that we, we, we bring out in the book. I mean, what a, what a phenomenal lost opportunity. But Borden just didn't care. He didn't care. In the campaign, he shows up in Montreal twice. I mean, only very, very briefly to meet with organizers. He doesn't address any, any public rallies. He just doesn't care about French Canada's views. On Regulation 17, he could have done a lot more. He could have interfered. He could have used the federal power to, uh, to deny the legislation. He could have done that. He does not do it, even though he knows the degree to which that cause is undermining the enlistment effort, he does nothing. I think that it shows Borden's mentality that he was so unwilling to walk the extra mile and make an effort 
to enlist French Canadians. And, you know, that we can talk about a whole bunch of administrative things that were also done wrong in terms of enlistments, in terms of, of appeal. But Laurier, I mean, Laurier in all this, I think, deserves a big part of the, of, of the, um, of the blame. He's an old man at this point. And I mean, not to take anything away from, from his age, but the reality is that he's been in politics far too long. And he's out of ideas. His party's out of ideas. His, um, I mean, the provincial liberals are in English Canada are walking away from him. But there are no new ideas in Quebec either. And the best he can do is to say, well, vote for me, vote for the liberals, and we're going to continue the war effort. And we're going to put it to a, a vote. We're going to put it to a vote, which is, which is disingenuous. Like, what, is, what result was he really expecting? So to our mind, Laurier was a second-rate politician at that point. He was not up to the task. And he was not able to present a compelling um, alternative to the union government that was headed by Robert Borden. He needed more imagination. He didn't have it. I mean, all that call for the referendum on conscription, it really was a a ruse at best. Um, he kept on talking about Australia had had a, a referendum on conscription and they voted against it and they were still part of the empire and so nobody nobody dumped on them. Uh, but but course, really... The enlistment in Australia was phenomenal. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and the, the divisions that you have in Canada just didn't exist in, in, in Australia so the comparison just wasn't uh, at all uh, logical. Uh, I would say just about Borden though is that, which is funny when looking back on it how much he believed that he'd done really good things for French Canada, that he felt that they didn't understand him. Yes. You know, they didn't, they didn't get it. I've been better than them, you know, <laughs> over all these years, and, and why don't they like me? You know, that, uh, and it's, it's very strange. Well, self-awareness has never been in great supply anyway. So, <laughs> but, but I want to talk about Borden's government, uh, and I want you to tell me about the Borden government's performance up until the election of 1917. What was your assessment, David, of that uh, of that performance? Uh, I think that the self-assessment uh, would have been that they were not doing very well. Uh, I think one of Borden's biggest concerns, and I would say from Laurier's point of view, one of his uh, one of his beliefs was that the Borden government had not done sufficiently well to be reelected on its own. Uh, and so you, we get back to that was conscription a political move, uh, and uh, you could argue, and certainly they believed in that May-June era of 1917, that the numbers just didn't add up for the Conservatives and that something would need to be done. There was problems on their unwillingness to raise the tariff, or to lower the tariff, excuse me, uh, that had been such the issue in 1911, and they had made no effort in that respect. And so winning Western Canada without conscription was a big question mark. So so just uh, just to take that a bit further, David... So was the uh, the way in which Borden um, managed the 1917 election a brilliant political stroke for him, even if it was a close to a disaster for Canada? Depends, I guess, on what you mean by brilliant. Uh, he did in 1917 what he tried to do in 1911 as well, and that was to reach outside the traditional Conservative Party to bring in other groups and people who felt uh, some uh, attachment to the things that he believed. Uh, it worked marvelously in 1911. Uh, it doesn't work in a long-term sense in 1917. But I think in politics, if you win, 
that's a that's a win. So what were the long-term implications for the Conservative Party? Well, he had hoped that he was going to create a new party, that the old parties, the old parties of Laurier and MacDonald, this era was coming to an end, and he was going to establish a new kind of politics. Uh, he's the first prime minister really to grow up in – he was born before Confederation, but grew up within Confederation – and so he didn't see his role as one of fighting the old battles of nation-building of Laurier and MacDonald. He wanted to create a new party uh, and, and a new way of looking at the country, uh, a cleaner country, less corruption, you know, a new kind of politics. So he had hoped that this union government that he was creating would last into the post-war era, that this would be a new permanent party. We know when documented in the book how fragile this party was, then it falls apart almost immediately when the glue of the war comes to an end. But his hope was that it would last into the, into the, the post-war era. And a new, he believed he, he was a progressive. He, he wasn't a radical or a, a, a revolutionary, but he believed that he was a progressive. And the most obvious uh, manifestation of that, of course, is the West. Borden wins the West largely on this last-minute promise during the election of 1917 that farmers' sons would be exempted from the conscription. And that's a huge winner for him. Can you imagine anything more cynical? I mean, he, I, I think cynical. I mean, he, he launches the election. Everybody's going to be conscripted. Everybody's going to be called to serve. Halfway through, he says, well, we're going to exempt the, the farmers. We're going to exempt the farmers so that, you know, you can bring in your crop. Lots of good reasons for that, of course. The West votes for, for the union government massively. I mean, there's hardly any liberal standing left uh, as a result of that. After the war, that translates into a huge disillusionment with the union government, and the West will be pushed into a new era where the progressive party will emerge, and in the 1921 election will rob the, uh, the whatever's left of the conservative government of any chance of forming a government. And from that point onwards, it's going to be very difficult for the conservatives to survive in the West with the, with the, presence, of the, of the, progress, uh, with the presence of the progressives. Dave, do you agree that it was a cynical move? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, th there was cynicism in, in the sense uh, of he did it to win the election. Uh, and then removing that exemption immediately after the election, you can't help but think of it in a cynical way, although he had his reasons for doing so. Well, Patrice, can you tell me if there are any current political and policy lessons to be drawn from the 1917 election and the conscription crisis of the time? I think that we did learn a lot. Again, I come back to uh, what David said at the outset. What was this glue? That What was this last glue that basically kept the country together. It's in part learning from our lessons. After the government, after the 1917 election, we the government actually sets up a commission to look after elections from now on, to depoliticize the process, to look into ensuring that everybody is enfranchised similarly, to make sure that there are no more exemptions. I mean, the union government does this, and it, you know, the reasons are, I think, pretty easy to understand. They did not want this tool to be used against them eventually. That's one thing. So we learn about that. We learn how to do elections better. Uh, Laurier uh, will leave a legacy for the liberals. In World War II, uh, Mackenzie King, the liberal, is faced with a similar situation. He has to bring 
he has to think seriously about what Canada's role will be in the Second World War. So the first thing he does is actually get a mandate. He, he, he dissolves the House. He asks for the House to be dissolved. And in 1939, there is an election that will give him a new mandate. But more than that, and again, the lesson of Laurier stays in his mind, when it's time for him to, be, to face conscription in 1942, he says, I will go to the people to release, to ask them to release me of the promise I made in 1939 not to impose conscription. He uses the referendum. Of course, everybody knew what the result would be, just as in 1917, that English Canada would vote massively in favor of conscription, that French Canada would vote massively against it, but he did it anyway. And the exercise in democracy saved him. I think historians are agreed that in the end, um, that's probably the, 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 the essential... Um, tactic that won him support. Of course, he also invested massively in the welfare state and promised a new welfare state in the 1945 election, and that helped him a great deal also. But I think that the lessons in terms of policy were learned there, that the results are always unpredictable, but that you have to talk to your electorate. And I think that as a result of this Canadian democracy, for all its difficulties and for all the distortions that the the first-past-the-post system can bring, has still kept the glue intact. And and he does it to diffuse the situation in 1942 because he knows there is no military need for conscription. It's a theoretical need for conscription. English Canada wants it. And there are parallels to 1917 where you see it is this desire of a, a large majority of the country to introduce conscription. Uh, and the irony is, of course, is that Borden, when he introduces it in 1917, he says the crisis is at hand, but then nobody is conscripted throughout the summer of 1917. And then he says, well, well, we will hold off conscripting people till after the election. So it's not until January of 1918 that this, uh, anyone is actually brought into the military. So again, it's not necessarily a military need. It is a political crisis that really leads him into that decision in 1917. It's only in 1918 with the last German offensive and then the final 100 days in August and September of 1918, that the real need for conscription begins to kick in. Luckily, the war ends. Yeah. <laughs> well, David and Patrice, thank you very much for this most fascinating interview. Patrice Dutille and David McKenzie were talking to me about the 1917 election and their book, Embattled Nation. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sumit Dami and Pernia Jamshed. See you next time.